0: Uh, We're doing another in the series of hearing the call and what a wonderful series it is on these middle chapters in the Gospel of Luke. And today we're looking at hearing the call to forgive from that passage that Mary has just read, Luke 17, 1 to 10. I wonder if you feel, as I sometimes do about some Gospel passages, on first reading or hearing a passage like uh, Luke 17 here that we've heard, can seem like a collection of diverse bits of teaching, uh, sort of unrelated chunks, although each is helpful in itself. It's a bit like those meals of leftovers you have um, from having had guests the day before. Now, I've got to be careful because Christine's here this morning. So <clears throat> They're tasty bits and pieces, that's true, but they're not particularly coherent, you know, or at least you can't see it. But anyway, looking closer at the Gospels, when this happens, you find there are connections that help make sense. And a patchwork meal can become fine dining. And so it is here. This Gospel and the Book of Acts are technically anonymous. But there are good reasons to be sure that Luke, the faithful doctor, travelling companion and helper of the Apostle Paul, was author of both books. He writes in polished Greek and contributes more than a quarter of the New Testament. That's more than the Apostle Paul. In Acts 1, 1 and 2, Luke says of his first book, Our Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. In these middle chapters of Luke's Gospel on which this sermon series is focused, there's that typical mixture of Jesus doing and teaching. In today's passage, Luke 17one 1-10, given probably on his way from Perea, east of Jordan, to Jerusalem for the final time, uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for their future ministries as apostles and first proclaimers. And that's the key to the connecting threads in this section. Actually, several themes run through the four subsections of Luke 17, 1 to 10. Tom Wright points to humility. Others notice faith. But there's another thread. And it's the need for disciples to be alert and ready, and ready in four ways. Firstly, there's the need to be ready for stumbling blocks. And so we read, Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. That last sentence, so watch yourselves, is a warning, isn't it? It begins verse 3, but it actually belongs to verses 1 and 2. The system of chapter divisions and numbered verses in our modern Bibles wasn't there in the original text. That was inserted in medieval times. I'm glad they did it. It's very helpful for finding things, but for understanding it can mislead us. Here Jesus teaches that sinful people will be a means through which serious setbacks and even devastating temptations will come. That's inevitable, so watch yourselves, he says. Now this warning is double-edged. Jesus probably means on the one hand, don't be stumbled yourselves. Keep your eyes on the main game, you've been warned. This seems implied in his words that causes of stumbling are inevitable. Setbacks happen for disciples. People let you down. Discouragement and even depression can come. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, you may cry out at times and say, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. We felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves but on God. Who raises the dead. So let disciples be realistic as Jesus is here in Luke 17. Such things are bound to come. But even more sobering here, Jesus also indicates that some setbacks can devastate the faith of a would-be follower of Christ. One of these little ones, he says, verse 2. So he dramatically warns against being the means of stumbling others. Far better to die a traumatic death. That's the millstone round the neck image. Before sinning so horribly against one of his little ones. That brings the certain judgment of God. These are hard words. No wonder he says, so watch yourselves. Jesus wants his followers ready. Not surprised because as he says, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But we must not be the means of their coming for the judge of all is watching and we must be sure to protect those little ones. Now if we ignore the chapter division again, perhaps Luke is Meaning, to re, uh, meaning for us to remember that passage just before this that we heard about last week and not leave a vulnerable poor Lazarus at our gates, a little one suffering and neglected. Now this is all good teaching for disciples, isn't it? Not from me, from Jesus. A second thing Jesus teaches here very much related to occasions of stumbling, is the need to be ready to forgive. In the rest of verse 3 and on into verse 4 of our passage today, Jesus tells his followers, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Jesus often insisted his followers must be good forgivers. In the Lord's Prayer, and Luke records it in chapter 11, verses 2 to 4, there's the petition, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Matthew records the Lord's Prayer too, and in Matthew 6 he he records Jesus adding, a supplementary comment highlighting forgiveness where Jesus says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Being always ready to forgive is the decent response of disciples who have themselves been forgiven by a gracious Father. But Jesus goes beyond simple one-off forgiveness here. What about repeatedly forgiving other very flawed disciples, your brother or your sister, who repeatedly sins against you and sincerely repents even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. There's genuine sin and hurt and genuine repentance. There must be genuine forgiveness from us. All true disciples must learn there is no forgiveness for the unforgiving. The spirit of forgiveness is to be there in the DNA of the Christian church. We can't hold together without it. Mean-spirited grudge-bearing poisons everything. But our calling is true-hearted forgiveness. And this leads to a third need disciples have, to be ready to grow in faith. Jesus' requirement of ongoing forgiveness is, deeply challenged those first disciples for now we read their response. The Apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Now that cry for greater faith isn't unreasonable. Luke records in chapter 23 and 32 of his gospel, that as the great crisis of Calvary was approaching, Jesus said to Peter, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Paul was always concerned for disciples who were weak in faith. The Lord understands, of course, the need for greater or stronger or even more faith. He sometimes rebuked his followers for having little faith. But as often happens with Jesus, he answers a request seemingly out of left field. Isn't that annoying sometimes? You don't know where he's coming from. After all, there wasn't a lot of use then and there isn't now for people who can throw mulberry trees into the sea by faith. I've never been asked to do that. So what's going on here? The disciples, seeing that permanent readiness to forgive is beyond them, say, Lord, increase our faith. But Jesus wisely points to faith's quality, not its quantity. And Tom Wright comments, It's not great faith you need, it is faith in a great God. Faith is like a window, says Wright, through which you can see something. What matters is not whether the window is six inches or six feet high. What matters is the God that your faith is looking out on. He's right, of course. Our faith may seem a small thing. In his commentary, Tom Wright calls it a little peephole. But real faith focuses on the living and active God himself as revealed in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. That's what counts. So in context, after Jesus tells his disciples to be always ready to forgive, he now follows up when they despair when such forgiving sees beyond, seems beyond their faith. He helps them see that faith that does great and astounding things is essentially of the same quality as the faith that does the little and basic things. All genuine Christian faith focuses on God and his mighty power, not on ourselves and our meagre Spiritual resources. Humility is that other thread running right through Jesus' teaching in this passage, and his last lesson stresses it too. So a fourth and final word to these disciples in this section here is that they must be ready to do their duty and without self-congratulation. He says, suppose one of you has a servant ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we've only done our duty. Now lest we imagine that the Lord is harsh here, let's remind ourselves that scripture is very clear. God does and will reward his servants. Many promises to that effect. So what's Jesus getting at? Just this. When we have served the Lord wholeheartedly, putting His priorities ahead of ours, even being genuine and consistent forgivers, we're not to be self congratulatory. We're not to take ourselves too seriously. The truth is, we muddle through at the best of times, don't we? And it's not mock modesty but realism to say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. What's the big deal? So let's be grateful to God for his help if we are becoming better disciples. But even then, let's remember what Paul said to the Corinthians. What do you have that you did not receive? That ability to be a servant. Where would you get that from? And pat yourself on the back. So, as we conclude, let's refocus on that readiness to forgive at the heart of our passage today. It's a wonder of Scripture that Jesus calls to discipleship people like you and me who need regular and repeated forgiveness from our Lord and from each other. And you know, we're so perverse sometimes, we can even find fellowship with others in our unforgiveness, can't we? Some smarty has said, a true friend is one who dislikes the same people you dislike. (laughs) (coughs) We're like that, aren't we? But we must turn from all tendencies, subtle or obvious, to feed or resuscitate, unforgiveness true-hearted forgiveness is our calling seven times a day says Jesus you must forgive them that's a daily discipline of discipleship making us more like him and becoming more like him that's what it's all about isn't it God bless you